0: Welcome to episode 6 of Live Out Loud, the new podcast from Axisweb showcasing conversations between artists on the issues affecting and informing their practice right now. It has been an incredibly distressing and turbulent few weeks out there in the world, so much so that I found it really difficult to know how to introduce this episode. The original premise for today's show was to explore the idea of a new world order occasioned by COVID-19, A sort of bigger picture take on the societal changes necessitated by the global pandemic and the role of artists in envisaging new ways forwards. Over the course of recent episodes we've talked about issues of accessibility in the art world, the importance of feeling connected to nature and how to practice care for ourselves and for other people when living at a social distance. Now as lockdown begins to ease, for some of us at least, we wanted to reflect on what, if anything, can be learned from this experience. Is there such a thing as going back to normal, and do we even want that? The need for system change has been a common thread throughout many of my conversations for Live Out Loud, but the real urgency of the situation was brought into even starker relief on May 25th, with the brutal killing of George Floyd in Minnesota by police officer Derek Michael Chauvin. The renewed visibility of the Black Lives Matter movement in the weeks that have followed, via protests seen around the globe, speak to a crucial and long overdue human justice issue that demands urgent and sustained attention. My guests, artists Elsa James, RM Sanchez Camus, and Sean Williams talk eloquently and movingly about their own responses to this unfolding and affecting situation. While we know that there's still so much work to be done, we at Access Web stand in solidarity with all those fighting against racial injustice and inequalities of all kinds, And I'm so happy to be able to share this important conversation with you today. I hope you'll find some wisdom, maybe some courage and some hope in the discussion ahead. So now, without further ado, I'll hand you over to Elsa, Marcello and Sean, beginning with introductions and a bit of information about their practices. I'm going to start with the sort of deceptively simple question. Could you introduce
1: yourself and tell us a little bit about your practice, if you don't mind, starting with Sean? Hello, my name is Williams, and I'm an artist based in Sheffield. Um, and I work predominantly, I would say in sculpture and performance. But I think of those, I guess, in quite expanded terms. So I think that it's possible to think about sculpture in terms of sound or choreography. And it's possible to think of objects or texts as performative. And I'm also interested Over the last few years in, I guess, keeping a sort of matrilineal narrative running through my work. So um, my mum died a few years ago in 2015, and I think I've become sort of increasingly aware of how my thinking about my relationship to her and her life and my place in her life plays into my work she was a weaver so I use a lot of sort of craft practices and reference sort of textile and craft practices in my work which is is a, my way of sort of thinking about my relationship with her and I think that what kind of runs through this all the time is probably a thinking about or a curiosity about a sort of multi-sensory and embodied awareness of the environment and of other people and As to how my personal and political beliefs play into my practice, that's um, something that I ask myself all of the time. And I don't really have an answer. I would define myself as a socialist. And I think it's really important to think of ourselves in terms of a collective and to think about solidarity. And I guess that a lot of my work is about the relationship between things and between people, whether that's objects or human beings, and trying to approach things from a sort of non-hierarchical point of view. But yeah, I, I constantly am thinking about that and I don't really have an answer yet. Cool, thank you. Same question to Marcelo.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is RM sanchez Camus, and I go by Marcelo. And my creative practice is mostly centered around performance installation and text. And I work usually site responsively Uh, and often in collaboration with community partners. Um, I guess there's been a lot of ways of defining uh, different practices that have been centered around community and collaboration, social engagement, and we've sort of landed on a, a shared term of social practice, which has been really useful to think about a way of working, but not necessarily a medium. And so I've done a lot of research around developing that sector here in the UK I've worked also in arts and health for a long time, specifically looking at uh, mental health and working around death anxiety with um, a a very large hospice in South London that I've worked with for a number of years. And a large part of my practice in thinking about what social practice and social art is, has been developing uh, systems of support for the artists who work in community-driven initiatives as a way to help them and furthermore help the communities that they work with. And I do that in two different ways. One is through my studio practice, Applied Live Art Studio, where I work with a number of different artists collaborating on projects, and is now expanded to um, working on commissions that are led by other artists, not just by myself. And also through the development of Social Art Network, um, which I helped co-found and I um, help lead the uh, London hub of meetups. And it's an association of artists across the UK that work in social practice. In terms of uh, social and political beliefs, um, I was born in New York City to parents who emigrated from Chile and I was raised between the two. So I spent time as a child living under Pinochet's dictatorship and I witnessed the transition of dictatorship to democracy. And that really affected me as a young person and has Driven a lot of my interests in politics and society. And that is kind of where I am today in terms of looking, looking at what cultural production means and how we can reframe it in the era of late capitalism when we need to rethink notions of value, um, definitions of aesthetics. And the way I do that is, is unpacking community well being uh, through psychogeography.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Same question to Elsa.
3: Okay, hi. Um, my name is Elsa James. I'm an artist based in South Bend, um in Essex and um, my work, my practice um, kind of overlaps um, discourses of race, uh, gender, diaspora, belonging, um, black history, the archives. Um, I'm really interested in looking at the historical, temporal and spatial dimensions of what it means to be black in Britain. But more recently in Essex, um, Black woman in Essex, Essex is um, England's most misunderstood county and homogeneously white county. So they're kind of current themes in my practice at the moment. I'd say I have a social engaged practice at the moment. I kind of describe my practice in two strands. So I'd say I have the social engaged practice and a solo practice. So going back, you know, talking about, you know, gender and diaspora and belonging, it's usually manifest through performance to camera uh, and text work as well. I like to use my position as an artist to make sure that communities um, and people that are marginalised have equal access to the arts and can engage in it freely. And politically, social and political beliefs in my work just runs through, it plays through really heavily. So as I said, you know, race, um, you know, Thinking about my position, thinking about people of colour's position in society, in life and calling out kind of racism in my work is is very strong. But I'm sure we'll come back into
0: that as
3: we talk further.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Okay, so. First sort of real question, I guess, for this episode about the new world order would be how has the current pandemic and the social distancing imperative impacted that practice that you do? so far and sort of more broadly any thoughts on how you feel it's impacting the art world in general and i'll reverse the order this time i'll go straight to elsa if that's all right
3: so um for me personally i was just just before the outbreak i was just about to apply for some funding from the arts council called developing creative practice and i was going to spend um, a, a period of time just recontextualizing my work trying out some new strategies um, but that included kind of live durational works. So I wanted to, um, to to test out live works in in sites in Essex, in tanning salons. Actually, I, I'm really fascinated with um, this. is going back to to my practice, but I've just there's so many tanning tannin salons and beauty salons, like just on every corner in Essex. Um, and in Southend, and I I just find it, um, you know, I look at these places, and for me, it's a place where, you know, women, young, and maybe boys as well, you know, and men go to make their skins, uh, to to tan their skin and make themselves brown, and I can't help um, thinking about, you know, growing up in 1970s Britain and being ridiculed, and now as well, you know, for having dark skin or, or having rubber lips, and these are places where, You know, women get their—you know—it's—it's fashionable to get your lips injected, and so I, you know, so this idea of kind of making work, durational live works in these places, in these sites, and then kind of thinking of some of the, again, 1970s Britain is such a racist place; it still is racist, but in terms of you know what was blatantly on TV, mainstream TV, and so there was a comedian called Jim Davidson. Um, He would do this stand-up sketch of a guy he called Chalky <laughs> and Chalky's lips were so big that they got in his way when he spoke. So he'd, well, he'd say Chalky and he, I can't even do it, but he'd, he'd shake his head. So his lips would wobble. So his voice would come out. So anyway, I was thinking about all of these things and to, to make me work, but then the pandemic happened. And so rethinking how I would kind of stage this work and rethinking about those ideas from home is going to kind of um, be very different. I've been very, very busy, and I've been waiting for a new camera lens to, to arrive as well. So I haven't had the time to kind of think about to change those ideas because of the pandemic, now that I can't sit outside or go inside of a tanning salon. But I think, you know, more broadly, the art world, I think, you know, everybody's been kind of forced to to kind of move online. And, uh, you know, so the social distancing, I think the art world, you know, you know, our work as artists and practitioners, creative practitioners uh, involves people (laughs) and humans. And so being forced to kind of, you know, navigate from behind a screen like what I'm doing now, I, I find it so strange. But I do think that, you know, there are more conversations online and it just and there is a kind of sense of more solidarity Especially, um, in particular, just when the Arts Council, um, so that, that that bit of funding, I was, you know, developing creative practice, went into an emergency pot, so I was no longer, t- I can't even apply for that, even if we kind of come out of uh, of lockdown, um, because that, that money's now gone into a central kind of emergency funding pot, Covid response pot of money. Artists, practitioners and, and so on could apply for a bit of money Up to two and a half thousand pounds whereas the developing creative practice you could you'd have a grant of up to ten thousand pounds so there's a big difference in what you can do with two or two two and a half grand to ten ten grand obviously there wasn't enough money to go to all artists that applied and the arts council kept on saying there's not you know not everyone's going to be able to get this this bit of funding this two and a half grand but there was a real sense of solidarity people putting syndicates together to just say, like, if we come into a syndicate and say four of us get the money, then we can sort of share it between us because, hey, you know, all of our work has either been postponed or cancelled or, you know, and so we're all in this and, we're you know, being in lockdown and having, and being forced to kind of have these conversations. I think there'd be more conversations and that's that's been great. But I, I personally, I just can't wait to just not be talking from behind a screen. It's just doing my head in.
2: Thanks, Elsa. That was um, that was some uh, you know, great information that you shared with us, and it's really interesting to hear about your projects as well. For myself, I had a, see, I had an exhibition that was due to open in May at the Horniman Museum and Gardens, which I had worked on for two years to develop. I had just come out of a very very um, heavy work period with participants. It's called Scrolled Life Stories from Birth Till Death, retelling these life stories through um, Symbols, working with some quite vulnerable groups of people for charity partner organizations, a very intense piece. And it was coming to, you know, towards its development. And that's been put on hold. And although that was quite difficult, I think that in May, May 21st, I had the, 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 what would have been the private view date. And, you know, I definitely felt that kind of emotional response to what it is to put work on hold. But I also understand that I, that the mere fact that I was working towards a museum exhibition as a social practice artist, and that it has a date of potentially opening the 5th of December puts me in an absolutely privileged position that a lot of people are not in. And with that awareness, I really shifted my energies because I was working really quite full on up until, um, the pandemic and the lockdown happened, and I really reshifted my energies into thinking about how I can uh, create response work. One of the first things I did was uh, working with that hospice partner in South London is developed like, a magazine that was a DIY art at home magazine. It's part of a program I run called the Creative Neighborhoods Project. and. Really, my intention was to create something that could be sent out to isolated community members and patients from the hospice that you didn't need the internet, you didn't need Zoom, you didn't need to access all these streaming services, at least from my experience working with a lot of the vulnerable people, including the patients and families is a you know, they either didn't have broadband or maybe they couldn't see their smartphones or they couldn't use their hands to manipulate them and i thought we need something that is not just this immediate push into the digital and that went out and that felt like really like a good achievement i was part of organizing the mutual aid group on the estate in which i live in tottenham um and you know, we went flyering 800 homes and that group has grown and it's really phenomenal part of two mutual aid groups and it's really phenomenal to see how they work, how they are autonomous and self-organized is a really important social shift on how we relate to each other. Uh, And I think those things will carry definitely into the future. We don't know how, but they are really interesting sites for protection and for intervention within um, social systems that I think artists are poised at doing really wonderfully the ethical artists that know how to work with social engagement, of course. Um, I Also in developing a resource pack for uh, Freedom Festival, who I've worked with for a number of years, I have a touring project called the Print Shop Rise Up, which is really about slogan making it's about direct making direct action slogans in response to community concerns the last one that we did was about climate change and i'm developing one now that is a kind of will will be a festival at home type pack in which you can engage in in thinking about um how do you write and distribute and display direct action slogans and this is something that uh, we're really seeing come to the forefront in terms of uh the civil rights movement, the racial justice movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I was at the rally in London at Parliament Square and it was absolutely inspiring and in the amount of really incredible words, powerful words and slogans that I saw really inspired me. And that—that that is really some of those changes that we see coming up. The lockdown and the pandemic, it's not gonna quiet or ignore those underlying social tensions that we have. It's going to reveal them, and I think for the art world, it's interesting because if we understand the organizational machines of the art world through the the two um, maybe ways of, of 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 collecting and showing, which are galleries and museums, and, and 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 as a social practice artist, and I think to potentially to many so socially engaged artists, is that the gallery system is not necessarily one that. Um, May be hundred percent relevant, of course, depending on the on, on on the space. But they tend to be market venture businesses um, and that don't hold sites of radicality. Not all of them, of course. And then museums, which have become these um, an industry, a tourism industry, really a part of the tourism industry. Uh, and when they reopen, need to establish relevance again.
0: I'll move on to Sean now for, for your for your thoughts on how the pandemic's
1: affecting you and and anything you think it's doing in the art world more broadly? Personally, I had quite a, what I think was quite a big year last year. Um, I'm on a residency at the Site Gallery in Sheffield um, with four other artists and we had a group show there and I also worked with a collective a performance collective and we um had a commission last year from the PRS foundation to develop a performance and then tour it to Counterflows which is a big experimental music festival in Glasgow and I felt towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year that what I really wanted to do was spend some time hibernating a bit and just being in my studio and not thinking about any sort of public output. And like Elsa, I was also going to apply for um, an arts council, developing your creative practice grant, although I hadn't got to the point of actually writing the application yet. So my thinking was very kind of internal going into this year. And in a way, the lockdown was the beginning of the lockdown was a really extreme version of something that I'd already planned to do but of course in that because it was so extreme it cut out the possibility of working with other people and a big part of what I do comes from working with other people and comes from collaborating So that felt like quite a loss. And losing access to my studio as well, um, and having to make the transition to working from home, I think, was a really big change. And I felt quite sort of discombobulated at the beginning, like I didn't quite know what to do, I didn't quite know what my work was anymore. And of course, coupled with that, the Um, as I'm sure a lot of people experienced the sort of really intense anxiety that came with the beginning of the pandemic and worrying about what it meant and worrying about relatives and friends and, and people who you know who might be more vulnerable than you are and it made it very difficult to concentrate i don't really like to talk about benefits that are connected to the lockdown because i think we're in a very difficult and dark situation but i think that one of the things that came out of this was that i did get some space to reflect back on work that i did last year and to focus on things and to maybe start maybe start making work that I actually really wanted to make rather than work that I felt like I should make. But I also think in thinking about how the lockdown has affected my practice, you also have to think about how it affects everything else in your life. And I work, uh, I have two jobs. I work at the university in teaching support and I used to work um, in a bar in the theatre. And whilst my university job has carried on and I do that from home now, The future of higher education is, of course, very insecure at the moment. And I don't feel I don't feel particularly safe in my job Um, and my job from the theatre. Of course, I've been furloughed and the future of the theatre industry. I have absolutely no idea how they are going to survive with social distancing. I don't, I, like sometimes I try and imagine how the theatre might be able to run performances again and I, I can't, I can't even begin to think about it. So I think that any feeling that I have towards my practice is massively influenced by the insecurity that I feel in my life at the moment. And I'm sure that's the same for an awful lot of people. And in terms of how it's impacting the art world, I think at the beginning, I can only speak for what I see of course, but I think at the beginning, I felt like there was a kind of rush from institutions and organisations to constantly be seen and to still be seen to be doing things. Um, and that I found that quite overwhelming. And I think I appreciated the organisations that seemed to sit back a bit and take a bit of time to actually think about what it meant to only be able to have an online presence. And that just sort of sharing all of your archive perhaps wasn't the best way to go about it and I think another thing Elsa that you said about um, the sort of solidarity that was beginning to be shown between artists and artists realising that we really had to help each other. I think if any of this can contribute towards dismantling the competitiveness of the art world and to dismantling the idea that we are always in competition with each other to get opportunities and can lead to more solidarity and a sort of greater sharing of things, then that makes me feel quite hopeful overall. Does anyone have anything
0: they want immediately to respond to any of the last things in the question?
3: No, well, a couple of things to um, to Marcelo. Um, climate, the climate emergency, we are, um, you know, that's the, the other big issue. Um, and I just also, just before uh, lockdown, I was doing a project with Magic Me, um, so i started a, an r and d phase of the project so it was a cross generational project working with um year 9 girls and older women in in the the borough of tower hamlet and just approaching responses to the climate emergency uh, through the voices of women and girls but we obviously um you know if the pandemic happened but but again we um instead of everybody kind of rushing to, to and feeling pressured about kind of just doing something online we also had to think about well who has access to to computers to the internet and we morphed um the kind of the 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 remainder of our workshops into sending out kind of um um, uh, packages um resource packs should i say to uh, the participants um and thinking about you know, that the, the, that nature of kind of receiving something in the post that's not a bloody bill and, and that tactile nature and then asking them to respond in their ways, you know, so they could, if they wanted to, upload a photograph, they could. But the idea was just to respond through words and, and on paper and send that back and I'm going to collect all of those responses back and make that into a zine um, as well. So it was just uh, that immediate kind of rush of what was saying of organizations thinking they needed to 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 just be seen as being online and you know I I didn't you know I don't want to see all of the archives I I haven't got time to see them all who you know with the rush of stuff that was just bombarded at us I mean it was just you know you, you didn't have time to do it anyway so yeah I just wanted to kind of add that as well
2: Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Elsa. And I totally agree with you on that. Those are really great examples of practice as well. I was also thinking about something that really, that both of you said that really links. One was how we use our position as artists to bring about inclusion. Um, And actually to even have the audacity to say I am an artist is really a massive space of privilege. Um, and recognizing that is really important, that is, that is absolutely a space of privilege. And with that privilege comes massive responsibility as well. And one of the things that we can do around that is exactly what uh, Shen said before about dismantling competitiveness and, and, and how we are able to produce higher levels of solidarity and more radical ways of sharing and that is happening. And I think those are the kind of things that can continue to happen. I think we're sort of starting to move to answer your next question. Sorry, Lucy.
0: Yeah, I mean, very much that that leads us to the next question. I wonder if we just want to, you know, plow straight on into that. So the the, the next question I had was to talk about any sort of positive changes that that people are seeing as a result of the pandemic, you know, acknowledging, of course, that, that there are an enormous number of, of, of challenges and, and difficulties and, and tragedies at the same time so any sort of interesting conversations that, that are coming up for you or projects that you're seeing kind of taking place yeah I mean that's probably enough but I think my, my last question on that was is there anything that we can learn from this virus is there anything we can learn from this period of, of social distancing so yeah Marcelo
2: yeah it's interesting I think that there's um there is often uh, hesitation for people to talk about the positive aspects of lockdown in the pandemic because it is a really trying time Um, there is a lot of trauma around it of course there's a lot of uh, loss and grief and bereavement and death as well but there is a lot of positive aspects that are happening as well and i do think it's important to unpack what those positive aspects can be because i definitely note them and i'm aware of them i live them in my own life and i kind of see them around me. Before I unpack some of that, I just wanted to reference, um, because I was trying to think about a project that that I've come across that is directly uh, linking um, in a holistic way to what's happening. And um, it was sent to me by a colleague of mine, uh, Stephanie Turner, who's working on The Lost Project. And they're doing a collaborative quilt called The Stitch in Time, where people can um, create their own small memorial for somebody who's passed away from COVID-19 that they're collecting together into a larger piece of collaborative work. And I thought that was a really beautiful and gentle way of um, creating a piece that commemorates uh, memorialization, helps you work through grief and also recognizes the times that we're living in. I did talk a bit about the um, benefit of the mutual aid groups. Those groups won't go away. That will absolutely continue. We now suddenly know our neighbors. If you're not part of a mutual aid group, join one. If there isn't one in your area, make one happen. It's very simple. You make a flyer, you put it under everyone's door and you start a WhatsApp group. You don't even need to manage it. They become self-managing. That is an incredible move towards a type of social autonomy where we can be helpers for each other in very small ways. And I'm seeing it really happen in the groups that I'm with all the time. And that is absolutely incredible. I do think that Staying at home, you know, there's this kind of joke that everybody's clearing out their attics. And in some sense, that is happening, assuming you live in a place with an attic. But this is also a metaphor. We are spending more time in our lived spaces. We are potentially clearing out cupboards. We are potentially getting rid of old clothes. I see loads of books that have been put out when I walk down the street. You know, this is not just a physical act, it also becomes what I think is a metaphor for clearing out not just the cobwebs in your house, but also in your own mind and in your own soul. This is a huge period of introspection. What happens when over three months you have all of society locked down? We're not just talking about the UK because this is happening globally, but just thinking about a UK context where if we think back, gosh, Brexit seems boring in comparison. It used to be the only thing on the news. Actually, we are beginning to unpack some of these bigger issues that sit and reside within us and how we respond to the bigger world. There's also this move into digital spaces that, you know, that is not going to change. We are not suddenly just gonna come out and go to the pub again if you go to pubs. Um, it is going to be about how we mix the two and that will continue in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of work practices. We will never go
0: back. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Same same question to Elsa, please. Spending more time with
3: my immediate family has been just incredible. In in ways that we're we're, we're, we're closer and and then we, we argue also about the most mundane things as well, because you know, it's not a huge place. There's four of us, my husband. Uh, my 25-year-old, who was 25 on Saturday, and my 14-year-old should be 14 next week. Um, a personal positive has been spending that time. And also, I mean, the, the slowing down, what Marcelo was saying is just slowing down and being kind of forced to slow down and listen to listen to ourselves. You're forced to just stop. So you have to listen to your body, your needs, uh, and so on. But also at the same time, for me, and it's, it's it's actually slightly negative. So you asked me for a positive, but I just think, and I've said it already, and, and I can't help it, it. Just it just highlights the fact that human beings need other human beings, um, and you know, life is about connecting. I think with other human beings, and it's something that we can't we can't really achieve through screens. And, and yes, I, I agree that this, you know, we're not going to go, there's not going to be a normal to go back to in the same way, and that the digital world, it, it will be part of our world, and we'll have to adapt. Um, but I'm still, I'm I'm slow with this. I I just, I, I'm yearning just meeting friends and, and being in touch with human beings that I know, apart from shopkeepers and so on, or your immediate neighbours, um, and things like that. So. The, the, you know the, the major positive you know I think for the world is that you know I'm sorry I keep thinking of negatives <laughs> but yeah the positive is that that we I would say go back to the fact that we we've been forced to kind of clean our cobwebs and our attics and and, and just and and be a bit selfish have that time to be selfish in, in a positive sense so you know self-care.
0: I'd love to hear from Sean now about any sort of positive changes that you have seen as a result of the pandemic or any lessons that we or you
1: feel you've learned from this period of time? Um, well I'd just like to say Elsa I absolutely agree with you about um, the need for human contact and for connection and I don't find that these kind of digital ways of communicating that we have are any substitute for that and I, I actually I live on my own So the last time I was in the same room as someone, if you don't count supermarkets, which are a whole stressful experience in themselves... Um, the last time I was in the same room with someone was my last day at work, which was the 16th of March. And the last time I hugged anyone was the 11th. And um, like that's pretty intense. And I found that in some ways, talking to people on Zoom or on Google Hangouts or whatever, it, it kind of makes me feel worse because it's such a sort of shadow of what life used to be. Um, it's such a, not what life used to be actually, but it's it's such a shadow of what really being with your friends is like, you know, and looking at someone and realising that they have a body mass and a weight and a texture and a smell. Like, yeah, it's really, really difficult. And um, as I say, I do find it difficult to use the word positive in relation to the lockdown, because it's, you have to remember that the reason that we're here is is not a positive reason. But I think that there are areas in which I have found some um, tentative hope and I think that the coming together of communities which I think we've seen most obviously in the response to the Black Lives Matter protests and the amount of people who I think have that will be their first protest that will be the first time they've ever gone out on the streets and the fact that they have felt that it's important to do that, or if they can't go to a protest, that it's important to do something else to show their solidarity. I think that makes me feel very hopeful. And the community groups, as you say, Marcelo, that's another form of solidarity that gives me some sort of tentative hope. And the amount of people who have now joined trade unions, I mean, I'm a massive trade unionist who will push joining a trade union at any opportunity, so I think people should always be doing that. Um, But the fact that people have, gives me a kind of tentative hope as well but I think at the moment as I say it is only a tentative hope because I think we're in we're in a very strange situation and it's there's a lot of kind of like changes and rushes of emotion and what I think the important thing to do is to all of these little seeds of solidarity that are growing up in places they have to be um, nurtured and they have to be maintained and one of the things that I think about all of the time is probably because I live on my own is how do you keep solidarity and empathy and connection with people if we are moving towards a world where we are all more physically separated from each other
0: yeah I have to agree with that too I mean how does people how do people feel about the the kind of current easing of the lockdown any thoughts on that I'll start with Marcelo
2: one of the things that I notice with almost like, um, it almost feels like at a governmental level, there is this real desire, need, and push to get back to normal. But my sense is that that easing of the lockdown, getting back to normal has more to do with the economy and less to do with the emotional care that people might need, like physical contact with a loved one, um, being able to see your parents, And we know that you can ease lockdown, everyone can come back again, fill into the buses and the tube with their masks on, and there will be another spike. I mean, this is how every pandemic has happened. If you look in history, there's been a double spike um, in cases. And in its way, I suppose, it's just allowing that to unfold. But what's more important in that reality is how do we create sites of care. Where are they? What are they? Where are the situations where we can unpack the trauma? That to me is really important. And that is where I think my interest and hopefully the work and labor of other artists who work in thinking about socially engaged cultural production can really be the ones to help develop and create those places because they are not really coming from an organized council level, let's say, and thinking creatively and radically about how we not just move forward, but deal with everything that we're carrying out of this situation. Because if you just go back to normal and ignore what just happened, you will just carry it always forever with you. There's a lot of learning that can be done. There's a lot of collective learning. And we have all been in this together. And there can be some really provocative, powerful, and beautiful sites of care that are made in response to that. That feels like a big responsibility, but I do think it's really possible. I think it's something I'm really interested in. I'm definitely exploring in my work and potentially I throw that out there as an invitation for anybody listening to also think about how you might model that in
3: your own actions.
0: Same question to Elsa, please. How are you feeling about the easing of lockdown and the eagerness to get back to normal, whatever that means?
3: It's actually quite scary, I think. I think, you know, this. it seems to be happening too fast. There's still a global pandemic that, that you know, there's no vaccine for that, that's still deadly. And I keep saying that to myself. You know, I've been, you know, even going shopping just, just a couple of days ago. Um, I've got my mask on. I'm doing all of the proper things, trying to do my social distancing. And then people are just coming into my space, and I'm like, "Don't you know there's a global pandemic? Look, you know, it's like, it's like, it's almost as if people are so fed up of being in this lockdown period that it's almost as if they're they're, they're prepared to die, you know, because because they're so fed up of, of of adhering to these rules now. And I just, I just, you know, people are just breaking rules because they just want to get back to normal so desperately. And I get it, but there is you know there is still and I, I have to keep saying well there's still a global pandemic and it feels you know and and like my was saying it's it's you know it's to get the country back going get you know get it moving the economy and all of that stuff but what about care what about what about the trauma and of course you know this you know trauma and care has just been massive you know since the death of George Floyd and with the Black Lives Matter just, you know, all over the world, um, white people are, are now coming out and protesting and saying that Black Lives Matter. I mean, I saw L.A., um, I think, yesterday. And so it's like people are saying, look, I don't care that there's a this is racism is a bloody pandemic and they don't care about this. You know, the, the coronavirus, this racism is, is needs to be to, to be um, to be dealt with now. And so it's been, it's emotional as well for me as a black woman. It's very emotional just to see, as I say, the shift as well. It's phenomenal, emotional, it's scary. It's, it's such a mix of emotions. It's, it's, is this really, could this be could this really be the start of change, or could it be, dare I say, you know, the black people are trending in 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 lockdown, and you know, you know, next week, you know, a bit like a dog for Christmas, you know, a puppy, get a lovely sweet puppy at Christmas, but a dog's for life, and I can't help drawing those parallels. I'm kind of hoping as well, hoping, which I've been doing throughout my practice, is about hope and highlighting, calling out, hoping and waiting and seeing and 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 just really. You know, the art world, hoping that we take a lead in this this in, in making this change.
1: Sean, how are you feeling about the easing of lockdown and, and, and getting back to normal? Um, well, first I think I'd just like to say that I absolutely second everything that Elsa said about racism being a virus. And I think that something that I am feeling very aware of at the moment is that If there is a spike in the virus following the protests, that um, it is evident to me that the government and some people will try to blame that on the protesters. And it's really important that we challenge that every time that that happens and point out that those protests were not a choice. They were something that had to happen and they were something that happened because of the systemic racism that exists in our society, and because that is completely unacceptable. And the blame for that lies, in my opinion, with governments and with people in positions of power who have not only allowed it to happen, but, you know, with things like the hostile environment have actually built it into their policies. Um, and I feel very conscious at the moment of yeah just paying attention to any time that that might be used to try and undermine those protests because I think they absolutely had to happen and I absolutely support every single person who went out and protested and and all of the people who are doing the other really really hard um less obvious work as well because that's why all of my hope is still quite tentative because there is still such an awfully long way to go um and the work that needs to be done now is is going to be difficult and uncomfortable um, and maybe even a bit boring in cases, but it's really, really essential. Um, so I just wanted to say that first of all. Uh, how do I feel about the easing of lockdown? I do not and have never trusted anything that the Tories have ever said. Um, I do not think that they have the welfare of the public at the forefront of their minds. So in that respect, I feel very nervous about the easing of lockdown. And yeah, like Elsa said, like, I go out and I see people not paying attention to social distancing anymore. And that makes me feel very nervous. And I think that has come through the absolute um, mishandling of this situation by our government. And I'd also I'd just like to ban the phrase getting back to normal completely. I'm a bit of a nerd and I like to watch the daily updates, less so now that they seem to have locked all the scientists in a box and they, they've turned into a bit of a pantomime. But before I was always very interested in the difference in language between the government representative and whatever scientist it was. And you would always hear, hear the government, the M, whoever, whatever MP it was, talking about getting back to work or getting back to normal. And you would Very rarely hear scientists say that. And if they did say it, they would say it in reference to the fact that that's something that it's not possible for us to do. And I think that when we talk about getting back to anything pre-coronavirus, I think that firstly, that is incredibly misleading because it suggests that that's something that's possible. And of course, what we have to do now is try and find a way to live with this virus until such a time as we have a vaccine. And that means that we have to find a completely new way of living our lives. And someone said to me that they felt that what they needed was not so much an exit strategy as an entrance strategy, because they feel like they're entering into something that is completely new. Um, And I think that's a much better way of looking at it. I think it's dangerous to suggest that we can go back to how we were before.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I heard someone use the phrase going forwards to normal. And I kind of prefer that idea a lot more. Obviously my, my, my next question is, is this idea of in a, in a utopia, you know, if, if we could have exactly what we wanted to happen next as a result of this global crisis, what would be the best possible changes that you would sort of see happening in the world? And that can be for society at large, that can be for the art world or for the, the environment, the world as a whole yeah, I think sort of in, in in the best possible case scenario, what what would you really like to see happen what what needs to happen next? And I'll start with with Sean again. reverse the order.
1: as I say, I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about how we might maintain connection and intimacy and um affinity with people and how that develops into solidarity in a world where we're more um physically isolated from each other. and um Marcelo, I agree that a lot of the government policy in easing the lockdown is very much focused on the economy and it's not on the welfare of people. And I think that that to acknowledge that we all need human contact and that actually human contact is what helps us understand each other and what helps us understand each other's circumstances that should be part of a of a global conversation I think in how we recover from the coronavirus and everything that's going on with it there has to be a sort of conversation about how we embed a sense of solidarity into everything that we do. And I think we've seen these huge surges in solidarity with through the support for the Black Lives Matter movement and through um, community organising. But I think the next step is how do we actually make that really ingrained into our lives all of the time? Something else that I think is really important is to pay attention to what is going on around us and to question what we're being told. And I think that that's a lot easier said than done because I think that... Um, information in the world can be very overwhelming and you know it might sound facetious but life moves pretty fast and if you don't stop and look around once in a while you could miss it and I have a one-year-old nephew and what I've thought a lot about is the fact that I feel a responsibility to bear witness to what's going on so that so that it's not forgotten and because his life is going to be so changed by all of this so that when he's older I can tell him what it was like and I think that is a responsibility for all of us to be part of a collective memory so that future generations can use that to carry on the work and can know how to act because sometimes in the moment when everything is changing so quickly it can feel quite difficult to know what you're supposed to do and I think that sometimes it feels like that's passive and that's not action but I think that paying attention I think that bearing witness are both I don't think that is passive I think that is active because I think what you're doing is taking note of things that need to be remembered and that need to be passed on
0: I I agree completely um same question to Marcelo utopia or non-utopia what do you want to see happen as a result of this of this crisis
2: yeah, I, I, I've I been always slightly anti-utopian, partially because I think that it can be used as bait in order to not address the real issues that we're living with on a daily basis. For me, every I absolutely one hundred percent agree with everything that Sean said in terms of thinking about how, in a post-pandemic future, we continue the types of real efforts around mutual aid that has brought about the effects of solidarity. Solidarity is a really important action and it is absolutely possible to harness it. I also think that hope is an incredible action and that also it can be harnessed. I wanted to just offer, which if you haven't, you probably have already read this before, but I think it's really if you haven't just to remind us that the word pandemic coming from the ancient Greek of or belonging to all people is actually what this word means. And if you break it all down, the components like pan, all every, pay to protect the shepherd and demos, the common people, free citizens, it actually embedded in the word of the era we're living in is how to create a site of care for all people. So there is an opportunity within the real challenge of what we're living in to take that into our hands and and how would we do that? Is maybe rethinking um, how we move from the action of clapping for the NHS to the direct action of pushing our government to fund the NHS correctly and not do the kind of bailouts for multinationals that are happening, how to rethink the profit system. We've lived under an age of austerity for over a decade that then became an obsession with Brexit. And all of these became control obsessions on the dominant narrative of who we are as people. And I I think that moving forward, we have the opportunity to reframe what that conversation is.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to move straight on to Elsa for the same question. What do you want to see happen?
3: the idea of the utopia is always kind of in
0: my work
3: and in what my thinking because of systemic racism and because of you know blatant racism and so you know a, a new world would 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 have no racism i think after this we need to think about the climate it's 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 an emergency but i think if we can get these two as well as all of the points that you've raised Marcellus and Sean, that these two major things that seem to be blighting society right now is racism. Because um, I used to say, and my husband used to say, it's quite a harsh, harsh statement. I've been saying for years, it's a racist world. It's just a racist world. This world is racist. And, and so, and that, and that systemic racism just affects, and inequality just affects, you know, half the world's population. And so, um, you know, the positive from this, going back to a positive, would be if, if we can challenge and kick racism up the butt and then get on then seriously get on to the next really urgent issue which I think is the climate emergency that would be you know a, a, a great a great step into um the uh an entry strategy I like that idea of not an exit strategy into a new entry strategy with these two topics
0: yeah I mean and that leads us into you know my my Penultimate question, which was, you know, we've, it's, you know, it's really important that we've we've already referenced this, you know, throughout this conversation. But I wanted to give more of a forum to talk about it, you know, more specifically. Obviously, you know, the pandemic isn't the only thing that's happening right now. We're we're in a moment of of, of much needed protest in response to you know, the murder of George Floyd. We have, you know, so many battles to fight in addition to to the one that we have right now against COVID nineteen. So. You know what can we do as artists and institutions to ensure that we're actively opposing racism and and inequality in all its forms just want to give a a moment for everybody to to talk about about that specifically start with with elsa straight away
3: yeah i mean i i, I was um, thinking about this yesterday morning i was on uh bbc um essex radio and i think with the art world i think you know and, and, well all corporations all companies all charities arts organizations boards, trustees, need to sit down in the wake of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matters uh, movement across the world, need to really sit down and, and, and talk about how they can address and unpack and kind of move forward with making sure that their work, the workforce, addresses inequalities and racism and so on. I mean, I... I Try to address this in the piece of work that I did with Marcelo in two thousand and eighteen in Sheffield um, as part of the Social Arts Summit. The Art Council has a strategy called the Creative Case for Diversity, and and just breaking down and and looking at well, for example, if organisations are not going to you know be Transparent and say who's in their work. If we can't start with who is in your workforce, if you if you have the freedom to say preferred not to say, we're never we're not we're not going to we're not going to move. Um, you know we're not going to get further. So we have to have really honest organizations. I say we those organizations because I'm not in them and those institutions and companies and boards and, and so on have to have very uncomfortable because it probably will be conversations about race. And about kicking, uh, and and then being, you know, kicking inequality and systemic racism out of the window, and get, you know, one of the ways of doing that is get people of colour, um, on 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 the boards in those organisations, and and actually just just taking advice from, from people that are out, you know, small organisations and grassroots organisations, listening to the conversations that's happening in social media. It just, yeah, they, sitting down and actually just having those conversations. Um, and I've already been invited and I won't say who yet, um, because um, I haven't had that conversation yet with them. I haven't told them I would say this, but I'm, I've already been invited to have sit down and have this conversation with one big art institution to, see, to, to talk about how they're gonna move forward and, and address it's number one black lives matters um, and uh, in their work moving forward
0: that's great either marcello or sean whoever gets in first happy to
1: leave it open i just sneak in before you marcello sorry i just i kind of i wanted to follow elsa because i think um that's are right thinking about um institutions workforces i Obviously, I work in higher education and I've watched with interest as universities, one university after another, has released public statements in support of their black and minority ethnic staff and students. Um, and I think that that's really valuable. I think that's really important. I think they absolutely should make that, those public statements. But let us also not forget that in this academic year, thousands of workers across the university sector myself included who are members of the university and college union took 22 days of strike action and one of the reasons that we did that was because of the gender and ethnicity pay gap and i mean like i find that offensive that we had to do that because as a sector universities can't get it together to pay their black and minority ethnic and women staff equally to their white male counterparts And so I think that whilst symbolic public actions are necessary, institutions also really need to look at how they treat all of their staff from um, artists that they employ to create exhibitions right through to catering and staff and cleaners. And they have to ensure that all of those people are paid equally and have equal workplace rights. And I think, if they're only doing the public statements then they're they're only doing a fraction of the work
2: that's great thank you both that's really inspiring and uh and i 100 support it for me in my experience and what i would recommend really moving forward is is an act of bravery i had an incident um where uh i as part of the work that i was doing for this um, large organization in South London, I was required because they were funded by a CCG and I was required to uh, take this preventing radicalization training, which I dissented on the grounds that it was anti-Islamic and racist. The issue went up to a senior management level and basically it was incredible to see the inner, trappings of an institution with, again, very well-meaning people sitting there making their case on why this was out of their hands. This was out of their hands. This was an obligation. This is just how it was. This was just the system. This They understood that this was my reservations, but they saw it as my reservations and the problem as being mine um i did not enter into that dispute lightly i came with lots of publications lots of research i had about 12 academic papers about the issues around prevent highlighted with pieces of text for them to read i come informed and there was just no real like budging on their part now what that shows is the power of white hegemony but also the inability for people to want to question those kinds of racist structures that are handed down to us by governmental organizations. This is not just this organization that in and of itself was not combating racist policies, but they were also victim to larger structural policies that were out there. And then who's the one to question it? And in that situation, I witnessed that actually everyone wants to pass the hot potato to someone else. Nobody wants to be called the racist. Everybody wants to be very well-meaning and understand where you're coming from, but no one is really going to make the change. That is a very difficult thing to do. It's very difficult to speak out on it, to challenge organizations. It's difficult to do it without people getting offended or seeing you as the problem, but it is absolutely essential. That work cannot only rely on black and brown bodies speaking up. It has to rely on white people also unpacking the racist structures within their own organizations as well, and being an ally. That is really difficult, but it is essential. That is one of the places where you can use your white privilege to counteract a system that has been in place for hundreds of years. I do not expect that in my lifetime, we are going to dismantle it, but I sure as hell want to be a part of doing the effort towards moving as much as we can forward in revealing it so that it can hopefully be pushed over the edge.
0: A huge thanks to Elsa, Marcelo and Sean for their contributions today in this important and wide-ranging discussion on the New World Order. You can find out more about each artist's practice on the Live Out Loud page on our website, www.axisweb.org. In particular, do check out the link to Elsa's free downloadable artwork, We Stand With You, produced for the arts charity First Sight. It has a really brilliant message and I've printed mine off and pasted it on my window at home. Don't forget that you can join this conversation online at any time on any of Axisweb's social media platforms. I know there'll be many of our members and listeners affected by the issues raised, and we really value and appreciate each and every message that we receive. You can also catch up on any Live Out Loud episodes that you've missed or listen again on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Apple and Google Podcasts. So that's it for this first season of Live Out Loud Podcasts. Thank you so much for your company over these past few weeks. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure to be able to share these conversations with you from incredible artists working in lockdown. Thanks also to all the artists who shared their ideas and experiences, their frustrations and dreams with us, and we hope to return to the airwaves again very soon with more conversations on the topics that matter to you. For now though, wishing you all the very best in these difficult times, wherever you may be, and as always, take care and stay safe. Goodbye.